In Acts chapter 8, there's a man who's traveling and he has uh, his scroll open to Isaiah 53. Not that it would have said 53 at that time, but he's looking at Isaiah and he's wondering, what in the world is he talking about? And Philip is there. And it says, beginning at this passage, he preached Jesus to him. That's our goal this morning. And I'm so thankful for the songs that have been chosen because they have directed our minds to Jesus. Jesus, name above all names. We've sung about the cross and all that's accomplished in the cross. We've sung about Hosanna, glory in the highest. We've sung about our Lord and Savior Jesus. And if you're visiting with us today... Um, that's our goal, is to direct other people to Jesus and to, and to encourage one another to know Jesus better. And I hope that what I'm going to do this morning uh, does not get in the way of what's already been talked about this morning. And that is our Savior, Jesus. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to, Act, or to, excuse me, to John chapter 7. Uh, we'll be there in a minute. We... Uh, we appreciate stories, admire stories about people who have uh, absolutely nothing, work really hard, and then you know, gain a whole lot of stuff, right? We, we appreciate people who are willing to go through that. What's interesting is that we also admire the, the opposite of that, which is someone who is born into everything and yet decides to leave all of that to live a humbler life. This morning we're going to look at the story of two individuals who follow the latter, who had everything in their lives, everything that anyone would want in their world, and yet decide to leave everything. We're going to be looking at the lives of Joseph, of Arimathea, and Nicodemus. Mark and Luke's account of the gospel tell us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin council. John's account tells us uh, we can deduce the same about Nicodemus. Each of these people have, have pretty much reached the pinnacle of a Jewish life and have reached the seat of power that you could have. And as we look at their lives and as we look at what it is that they left, I'd like to take a look a little bit more at what the Sanhedrin Council was. The Sanhedrin Council at the time of Jesus was a religious and political body uh, made up of 71 judges, one the high priest, 70 others. And they were located in Jerusalem and they were the supreme leaders of the, of the Jewish world. Though politically their jurisdiction, uh, as far as the Romans would see it, was really only greater Jerusalem. Religiously, Jews everywhere pretty much had to follow what their interpretation of the law was. There would be these lesser councils in other cities uh, around the Jewish world, and they would have to be in subjection to the great council, the Sanhedrin council as well. You can kind of trace back their origin all the way back perhaps to Exodus 18 and the advice uh, that Jethro gives to Moses saying, you know, gather men together to help you with these disputes. And then later on in uh, Exodus 24, uh, 70 of these men, perhaps these men, were gathered together to worship at the base of Mount Sinai with Moses. Then you can read again in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, where Moses uh, was called to gather 70 men from the elders of Israel, maybe the same people, to help bear the burdens of this ungrateful nation. 
So the Sanhedrin could trace their origin all the way back to Moses. Now, following their entrance into Canaan, you really don't get a lot of insight on these 70 individuals, except one pretty, uh, well, pretty harsh review of them uh, in Ezekiel. Outside sources, though, do tell us a pretty good bit about the tradition that they had uh, established, this tradition being reestablished following the return from exile. And not only did the tradition of the greater council resume, but so did the lesser ones in the cities of the Jews. Now, their function, as they kind of reestablished this, was to get back to the true temple worship that they once had, as well as serve as a governing body. Now, though their amount of power changed throughout the centuries, certainly depending on who is in power in the greater world of that time, whether it be Alexander the Great, whether it be the Romans, things like that. Under uh, Roman rule, though, the Jews were given a, a higher level of, of independence, a higher level of, of, of autonomy. They were able to, to kind of operate within their own world as they pleased. Um, and maybe because of that, the Sanhedrin gained even more power among the Jews that they had before. That Now they were able to imprison people as well as kick them out of the synagogue. And perhaps because of that, certain members of the council, certainly the Sadducees we see reference to, they became much more politically driven than religiously. And the New Testament highlights a lot of the power that they had. So they have, they wield so much power. But to be one of these members of the council was a very difficult thing. And it was a long and difficult process. The election, uh, the election of these elders or council members following the return from exile is kind of hard to trace. Nehemiah 11 might give a little bit of insight there. But again, outside sources would suggest that in order to be part of this, you had to be a wealthier, more prominent family of Israel. You had to meet a certain list of qualifications. You had to be older, so that would mean that you had to go years and years and years in preparation of, for this. You had to be a father. You had to be popular among your peers, specifically popular among the wealthier crowds. You had to be well studied in the law of Moses. You had to be well studied in other academic areas. You had to know multiple languages because Jews from all over would be coming in looking for disputes to be settled and you have a, had to have at least two or three people who spoke that particular language. You had to be modest. You had to be courageous. And oddly enough, one source said you had to be tall, perhaps to be more physically imposing. That would rule a lot of us out. And let's say you, may, you, you fit these qualifications the process of becoming a member of the Sanhedrin would have taken years. First, you had to be a part of this larger congregation. Uh, I, that's the language that's used, perhaps going all the way back to Exodus 18. But then there would be like this three-tiered election process. So you had men who were sitting in three different rows. And a new member of the council would be chosen from that first row. And once that person is chosen, then a man from the second row would be elected to go to the first. Then a man from the third row would go to the second. And a man from the congregation would then go to that third row. And so you have to go through all of these processes in order to be a member of this elect council. So needless to say, the position of a Sanhedrin council member was highly sought after. Not only was it because there were just so few of these positions available, but it was highly distinguished, highly respected, and extremely powerful. So, why would someone walk away from something like that? 
Why did these two individuals choose to give up everything in order to follow Jesus? Nicodemus, who is really only mentioned in John's account of the gospel, is described as a ruler of the Jews, which many believe to mean that he was a member of of this council. But throughout John's gospel, Nicodemus seems to be rather sympathetic of Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. He almost vouches for Jesus in some way in John 7. And then we see in John chapter 19 that he is now showing allegiance to Jesus by burying him. And then introduced only at the end of each gospel account is Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of this council, but he seems to be having doubts about this position. And if you were to combine all four accounts and the description of Joseph, it would read something like this. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy, prominent member of the council, but a good and righteous man waiting for the kingdom. He did not give his consent to the plan to kill Jesus, for he was a secret disciple. And after Jesus' death, he gathered up courage to ask Pilate for Jesus' body to bury Jesus in his own new tomb. What was it about Jesus that made them leave everything that they had? And that's the question I want to pose this morning. What is it about Jesus that has caused you to give up things in this world to follow him? But really, the people that I really want to be talking to this morning, those of you who are considering Jesus, think about Jesus. What is it about Jesus that would lead you to give up everything in order to follow him? I believe when Joseph and Nicodemus were confronted with Jesus, their entire worldview changed. They could no longer just operate as usual. But what was it that caused them to leave everything? I believe the first point that I want to make is that Jesus' life was just in total opposition to theirs. Jesus' life was the opposite of the life that they were living. Jesus spoke differently. Jesus talked differently. He taught differently. Nicodemus heard this firsthand when he came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And when Jesus is speaking to him, he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused by this, but Jesus elaborates. And I believe the conclusion that we can come to is, Nicodemus, you got to change. Anyone who's going to come to the Father is going to come through me. And in order to do that, you have to change. Even you, a member of the council. John 6, it was the difficult words of Jesus that caused people to walk away from him. But the same words that caused Peter to declare... You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Mark's account quickly establishes that Jesus taught as one having authority, different than all the scribes and the Pharisees. And in John 7, there's certain officers, members of the council perhaps, who are confused because they know Jesus Jesus wasn't educated like the rest of us, and yet they themselves declare, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And even though they try to trap him with difficult questions, Jesus' responses force even one of the scribes to say, he's answered all of them well. And then it leads to what is said in uh, in Mark 12, verse 34. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus spoke differently. And I would imagine Joseph and Nicodemus realized that. But not only were the words that Jesus spoke different, but the people he spoke to were different than the ones that the scribes and Pharisees would associate with. 
Jesus spoke to everybody. He reached out to tax collectors. He reached out to prostitutes. He reached out to sinners. And he sat with them and ate with them, things that really, really bothered the, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, he called them to change, for sure. But in a loving manner, he taught them forgiveness. Jesus spoke differently, but Jesus acted differently. Jesus lived differently. While there are many times in which Jesus calls out the leaders of the Jews, perhaps the most striking one is in Matthew chapter 23, where he gives a commentary on the scribes and Pharisees who have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. I believe a reference to this Sanhedrin council. And he provides this scathing review of them. Look with me at some of the things that are said about them. They cast burdens on others that they are unwilling to carry. They love the praise and the, the, the adoration from men. They don't humble themselves. They themselves don't enter the kingdom. And what's worse, they keep others from entering the kingdom. They take advantage of poor widows, I think financially speaking. They pretentiously give these long prayers. They convert other people to their own religion, and perhaps the harshest words of all, in doing so, they make others twice the son of hell as they are. They add to the law with their own traditions, uh, many times in ways that benefit themselves. They give more of an emphasis on the minor things, again, specifically ways that might benefit themselves, rather than giving attention to justice and mercy and faithfulness. They make themselves look good on the outside, but yet they're rebellious, they're robbers, they're giving in to self-indulgence. Like a beautiful tomb, all that's on the inside is death, and they're blind to their own sins. These are the leaders of the Jews. These are God's people who are supposed to lead people to understand God more. And as you look at these things, compare them to Jesus. I mean, specifically, look at the way Jesus is different than all this. Cast, they, uh, they cast burdens on others. What did Jesus do? Cast your burdens on me, 1 Peter, and verse 7. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Jesus is looking for people to cast their burdens on him. They loved the praise and honor of men. The only, the only one that Jesus was looking to, uh, to please was His Father. John chapter 5 and verse 30. He humbled Himself to the point of a slave. Uh, 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 Philippians 2 and verse 7. As far as the kingdom is concerned, Jesus is the door to the kingdom. He is the way. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to create His own stipulations or anything like that. And the list could continue. We could go down this list and just see how much different Jesus is than these leaders. Jesus is the opposite of all that was corrupt with Joseph, Nicodemus, and the rest of the council. And Jesus is the opposite of all that's corrupt in this world today. So if you are looking, look at Jesus and ask yourself, how does Jesus compare to your life? How does Jesus compare to the world in which you are living in? I believe the more Joseph and Nicodemus interacted with Jesus, the less that they could deny that he was good, the less they could deny that he was from God, and the less they could deny that he was the Christ. But it wasn't at this point that they start following Jesus. John's account mentions several times that the power of the leaders of the Jews had was strong, even on one another. John 7, people are considering if Jesus is truly good, but the conversations are in secret because of fear of the Jews. In John 9, the parents of a blind man who is healed, 
They're extremely selective in their words as they report what happened to the Pharisees because of fear of the Jews. John 12, even some of the rulers, it says they believe, but they refuse to confess out of fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Go over to John 7. There's an interesting conversation that happens there, beginning in verse 40. There's an interesting back and forth in John 7 where members of the council and the crowd are conversing. And it says in verse 40, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. And still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that, he, uh, that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did, you, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? What we see here is that there is an obvious division that Jesus has caused with these people, obvious controversy, but the conversation is totally shut down when the idea of possibly believing in Him. Certainly none of the Pharisees believe in Him, do they? But the conversation continues, verse 49, But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to, uh, uh, before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So as they criticized the crowds for not knowing the law, Nicodemus looks at them and says, We're not really following the law right now. Where is Jesus? We're not talking to him and asking him questions. And again, the conversation is shut down through this intimidation factor. The power that these leaders had over confession of beliefs was strong. And even though I believe Joseph and Nicodemus believed that Jesus was the Christ, even at this point, they are not willing to declare it publicly, because as we all know, it is much, it's a much different thing to believe in something and something else entirely to follow it and publicly declare it. So again... Why were Joseph and Nicodemus willing to give up everything they had worked for their entire lives, even willing to face the rejection and ridicule? Of course, the way Jesus lived was different. But, again, it's not at this point that they follow. It's not until after Jesus dies that they choose to follow. Why then? Because at that point, there is absolutely nothing to gain in following Jesus, only everything to lose, and yet they choose to do it. Well, I believe that Jesus' death confirmed the way that he lived. I believe the way in which Jesus died caused them to gather up courage, as Mark puts it, because nothing else shows the difference between Jesus and the rest of the world than the cross. I'd like to read portions of Matthew and Luke's accounts of the gospel, and I invite you to just kind of listen. If, if you feel compelled to turn there, because that's, that's just what you do, that's fine. But I would like to encourage you just to listen. And I want you to imagine being Joseph. 
Imagine being Nicodemus. Imagine struggling through, is Jesus really the Christ? I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? As Joseph and Nicodemus witnessed these things, by standing with the council, they would be choosing lies, anger, and violence over the solemn silence of Jesus if they continued to live the way that they were living. Chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they handed him over. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to him, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. If Joseph and Nicodemus continued to side with the council, they would be siding with hypocrisy in allowing a well-known insurrectionist, a thief, and a murderer to be set free over a man who has done nothing but provide reason after reason that he is the Christ, the Savior of mankind.
Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on and led him away to crucifying. If they chose to go along with the council, they would be choosing injustice and treating a man of peace with hostility and mockery. Then in Luke 23, beginning in verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. I believe Joseph and Nicodemus could see the difference between those mocking and hurling insults while Jesus was showing compassion, offering forgiveness to a crucified thief, and even offering forgiveness to the ones who put him on the cross. Perhaps they recognize the same thing Paul recognized in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, when Paul uh, establishes, look, people don't die for other people. They just don't do that kind of thing. Maybe they would die for a righteous man, but certainly not for a sinful man. And yet, Jesus died for the ones who have so badly mistreated him. What Jesus shows on the cross is so contrary to what we see in the world. And yet, what Jesus shows on the cross is everything we want to see in the world. We want to see someone who is willing to put himself in front of other people's harm's way for other people. We want to see someone who is willing to offer forgiveness even when they're wrong. We want to see people who love those who are downtrodden. We want to see people who call out those who are hypocritical. We want to see that. But only Jesus provides that. 
at the cross and in the events leading up to it, both the council and Jesus seem to be backed into a corner of sorts, figuratively speaking. And what Joseph and Nicodemus see is the true colors of both. The one had all the appearance of truth and holiness. Only one was willing to die for truth and holiness. So why did Joseph and Nicodemus leave everything to follow Jesus? Because they could no longer align themselves with the corruption of the world. So the question is the same for us. Why are you going to follow Jesus? Are you willing to leave the corruption of the world? Joseph and Nicodemus had to align themselves with truth. Even if it was truth after Jesus' death. Even though it offered them nothing of worldly value. The truth, the love, and the compassion of the cross demanded that they no longer live in secret, but boldly dedicate themselves to Jesus. So again, the question is the same for us this morning. What are we going to do with this truth? Are we going to align ourselves with the corruption of the world or follow Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I believe Joseph and Nicodemus saw that. They couldn't live that life they were living before. And follow Jesus. Who will you serve? And as you consider that question, especially those who are not Christians, I want you to consider that question while observing the cross. While thinking about what Jesus did and proved on the cross. And also consider the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Following Jesus requires leaving a lot of things. A lot of things we love. A lot of things we convince ourselves we need. But Jesus promises that if you lose this life, you will save it. Jesus will save it. Joseph and Nicodemus found courage through the cross. What is the cross to you? As we read that account this morning, what comes across your mind? What is the cross for you? Because I, cannot, I can confidently say that you will not find a greater display of love than that of Jesus on the cross. You will not find greater compassion than that of Jesus on the cross. You will not find greater guilt as you consider why Jesus went on the cross, but you will not find forgiveness in anything other than the cross. So my plea to you is that you would find courage through the cross and choose this day to give up the fleeting pleasures of this world and follow Jesus. Now the benefit we have over Joseph and Nicodemus is yes, we follow Jesus after His death, but we follow Jesus after His resurrection. I don't know how much Joseph and Nicodemus knew about the resurrection, 
I'm going to argue they didn't know a whole lot. And yet they still chose to follow. We, on the other hand, know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the significance of that is laid out in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. Which means, because He has been raised from the dead, we have forgiveness of sins and we can be pure before God. Only because of the blood of Jesus. And we can be raised too. So that when we lose this life, we will truly find it with Him for eternity. The invitation is for you to become a Christian. And I hope looking at the cross of Jesus has caused you to consider that a little bit more this morning. And if you have any need to, you want to talk about becoming a Christian, or you want to talk about confessing some sin in your life, you can make that public. You can also just talk to somebody uh, as we're here. But if you have any need to respond to that now, I invite you to do so while we stand and while we sing.